Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Um, if you're thinking, we usually do one more song, that prayer song right before. We've got a lot going on this morning, and so I'm up here a little bit earlier. We've got seven baptisms coming up at the end of the message, so that's something to be really excited about. And then when the kids come in with us to celebrate those baptisms, we're also going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, and so we'll do a couple more songs of worship along with the baptisms and Lord's Supper at the end, just so you know what's coming up. We're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5 again here in just a second. If you want to be turning there in your Bibles or on your devices, it is also in your worship guide, your bulletin, and I'm going to have it up on the screen. We're working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we spent three weeks sort of introduction and overview. Last week we took our first chunk. This is our second chunk, so we are in the middle of a chapter and also the middle of the sermon. And so as I read here in a minute... Um, I'm going to be asking the question, we're finished, what does this teach about God? And you can be listening for things that you hear the Spirit of God saying to you from His Word during this time, truths about who God is, His nature, His character, how He works. Um, and we're going to ask you to share some of those that you're seeing in this section. Uh, but for those of you who have been here with us the past few weeks, don't be afraid to let the context of the whole sermon and everything we've looked at also kind of point you to truths that you want to share. So what does this teach about God? And then if these things are true about God, what's God saying to us and to our hearts this morning, both individually and as a church? And that's how we're going to focus on the passage and work through it like we do each week. But first, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now in a way that we would acknowledge that the most important things that can happen during this time, all of them are a spiritual work of God that only he can do. And we're going to ask his spirit to be teaching us from his word in a way that only he can, in a way that speaks to our hearts and softens our hearts and stirs up faith inside of us so that we don't just walk away with a little more information about the Bible or even a little more information about God, but rather that we walk away encountering God and hearing from God and being changed by God as he works in us. So will you pray that with me right now? Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us by your Spirit from your Word as only you can. Open up the truth of your Word to us and open us up to the truth of your Word. Give us spiritual eyes to see you more and soften our hearts spiritually so that we respond to you in faith and we love you and trust you and follow you. We ask that you would work inside us by your Spirit, making us who you are calling us to be as we follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So as you're listening, what does this teach about God? We're picking up in verse 17 of Matthew 5, and this is Jesus talking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll stop there for today. What does that teach us about God? What stands out to you? Jesus raises the bar. Uh oh. Something's not working there. Here we go. Jesus raises the bar. Do you want to? Point us to a verse or tell us what you're thinking about there. Yeah, so 
one of the ways Jesus raises the bar here, and we've talked about this a lot the first few weeks, when he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law would have been the most religious, most righteous-looking people at this time. They were the ones keeping all the rules, memorizing Scripture, spending all their time trying to look really holy and do all the things on the outside that look like they are really, really righteous. And Jesus says, if you're going to get into my kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of heaven, that's not enough. The most righteous people you know, the most righteous behavior you've ever seen, the religious people who seem the holiest to you are not good enough for my kingdom. You will have to be more righteous than they are. So he's raising the bar from typical religious righteousness, religious righteousness that looks like they're behaving really well and following all the rules. And he's like, it's got to be more than that. It has to surpass that to get into my kingdom. And then he starts to explain what he means. And this is, you want to talk about raising the bar. This is where he really raises the bar. Because over and over and over, he says things like this. You've heard that it was said, and then he quotes something. And what he's quoting is the Bible. This is what God said to his people through Moses. and is written down in the Ten Commandments, in the law of the Old Testament. But you shall not murder. So this is, this is a law that God gave to his people, and Jesus says, you've heard that, but I tell you, and now he's adding his teaching to what they already have in the Bible, which, by the way, is also an audacious thing for Jesus to do right here. Like What he's saying, without even saying it, is my words are equal to the words of God. God said this to you a long time ago, now I'm explaining to you what it really means. You heard this from God, now you hear this from me because I am God. This is God the Son come down with us, telling us what God really intends. So you've heard that it was said to the people, you shall not murder. You've heard, but now I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he comes down here and he does the same thing again. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So again, quoting the Ten Commandments, but I tell you, Anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of a divorce. Like There was a legal way in the law of Moses to properly divorce someone, but Jesus says, but I tell you, that's not God's intention for you. Even if you have a good legal reason, God doesn't intend for you to get divorced. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath. So you make an oath to God, make sure you keep your oath. But I tell you, I'm going way farther than that, don't swear an oath at all. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And so over and over and over, Jesus comes to the law, comes to religious righteousness, and he says, look, here was the bar when it was the law telling you how to behave externally. And I'm telling you in the kingdom of God, this is the bar. That the way Jesus raises the bar is he says, external behavior is not enough for my kingdom. I want internal heart change. That your heart has to match your behavior. You can do everything right on the outside. You can look the way that you're supposed to look and you can fool everybody else and you can make them think that you're this really holy, righteous person. But if it's all just external behavior and it's not true in your heart, that's not who you really are. And Jesus is saying, I'm not tricked by that. 
I'm not fooled by your external behavior. I'm seeing your heart, and I want your heart. I want you to be changed, not just what you do, but who you are. And everything he says here is so much higher of a standard because, you know, we can say, I've never murdered, but then Jesus is like, but how often do you hide anger in your heart? I've never committed adultery, but how often do you hide lust in your heart? And you can go through the whole list like that. You know, I'm always fair and always just in the way that I treat people, but how often do you forgive your enemies and love them and pray for them and submit to them? How often, not just do you only seek justice, but how often do you actually seek grace toward other people? We can say a lot more about it, but I want you to have time to talk. So Jesus raises the bar. You can expand on that or other truths that you see here about God in this section. What else stands out to you? Oh, yeah. This is a huge truth about God. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So we have an act of worship toward God. Like you're, you're offering your gift, you're, you're giving your offering in an act of worship toward God, but... You've got a broken relationship with somebody in your life. They have something against you, and it hasn't been resolved. And Jesus really clearly here says the priority is reconciliation. That If you have not attempted to reconcile with this person yet, don't even come and offer your gift to God as an act of worship. And he's taking something that obviously is really important, something that would have a really high standing in any religious person's mind, this act of worship of giving toward God. And he's saying, as important as that is, you need to understand that reconciliation is even more important in my kingdom. Reconciliation comes first. And it fits with these things he says later about... Love your neighbor and hate your enemies, the old rule. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't just love the people who love you. Everybody does that. Don't just greet the people that you like. Everybody does that. There's a new standard here, and it's the standard of your heavenly Father. And so when Jesus up here says reconciliation comes before your religious rituals, Let's just say it that way. In Jesus' kingdom, reconciliation takes priority over religious rituals. When he says that up here, you get to the very end of the chapter and you realize the reason he says that is because everything we do is supposed to be a reflection of who God is. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so when Jesus gives us this standard of pursue reconciliation even before religious ritual, he's saying that's who God is. That's how you should be if you're children of your heavenly Father. Everything he says to us in this chapter about how we should be is built on this is who God is. If you belong to his kingdom, if you belong to his family, if you're a child of your father, you should start looking more and more like him. And so what we get right here is that God values reconciliation over religious ritual. 
and that God goes to the greatest extent that we've ever known, that the center of God's entire story is that our relationship with God was broken, that we were separated from God by our sin, and God pursued us in such a way that he sent his own son to die for us to make us right with him, to offer a way for us to be reconciled to him. That's how massively important reconciliation is in the heart of God. And so God says, if you're getting to know me and you're in relationship with me and you've experienced my heart of reconciliation towards you, that has to become a priority in your life toward the other people in your life. And and you can come and do all of your religious rituals You you can come and offer your gifts and you can be here and worship and you can check that box off every single week and you can, in a sense, trick yourself into believing, hey, I'm a pretty good, pretty religious person. And Jesus says, that has nothing to do with whether or not you're right with me in my kingdom. Are you becoming a person of grace who pursues reconciliation with others? Are you becoming a person of love and forgiveness and restoration? Does your heart beat the way that God's heart beats for grace and reconciliation? If not, your religious rituals are empty. They they aren't a source of righteousness. They aren't what God wants in his kingdom. And it's not that that's not important, worshiping God, offering your gifts, but Jesus is saying you can fake that. You can't fake a heart of grace and love. You you can fake on the outside, yeah, I don't murder people, but that has nothing to do with whether or not there's anger in your heart. You can fake on the outside, yeah, I haven't committed adultery, but that has nothing to do with whether or not there's lust in your heart. You can fake on the outside, I make these grand oaths to God in front of everybody, and then I keep them, and they think how faithful I am, but that has nothing to do with whether or not you're a truthful person in your heart. And Jesus is saying, you should be so truthful that all you have to do is say yes or no, and people know that's what you mean. If you have to take an oath at all, that's a problem with your truthfulness. So in Jesus' kingdom, reconciliation takes priority over religious rituals. What's another one that stands out to you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you can connect that truth, you know, to other sections in the Bible where Jesus calls us to be his body, which means we need to be like him. You know, other sections in the New Testament call the church the body of Christ, Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 describes us like every single person who's connected to Jesus by faith is a different member of the body. And the intention is that Jesus would be living out his love, his grace, his power, his work in the world through us as his body. And then what we've got here in this section is if we're going to be the body of Christ, like really live as Jesus' body, then we have to live the way that Jesus lives that our righteousness has to be Jesus' righteousness. Our love has to be Jesus' love. Our forgiveness has to be Jesus' forgiveness. Our grace has to be Jesus' grace. Our purity has to be Jesus' purity. And, and simultaneously, two things happen here. The first one is, like, if you really take that seriously, and if you listen to this section, what he's saying, you're going to look at yourself, and you're going to be humbled because you're going to say, that's not me. Like, if you look at other people 
which is what typical religious righteousness usually does. I'm going to compare me to other people. And I'm, I can find people who I'm obeying better than they are. I look better than they do. I'm keeping more rules than they are. And it may puff you up, and your pride may grow, and you may say, well, you know, overall, I'm doing pretty good. I'm okay. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, that's not the standard. What other people do isn't the standard. The law isn't the standard. He says, God himself is the standard. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And when you stop looking at everybody else and you look to Jesus, then all of a sudden you're like, that, I don't measure up to that. However righteous I may think I am in comparison to everybody else, I am not as righteous as Jesus. The things he's calling for here, perfect purity in my heart, perfect purity at all times and all of my motives and all of my thoughts and all of the hidden things that nobody else in the world can see, I don't measure up to that. To love people this selflessly the way that Jesus did, I don't love people that way. To let people take advantage of me out of grace and mercy and love towards them, I don't do that. To look out for others before myself, to surrender every aspect of my life, saying this is about God's kingdom and his work in the world, I don't do that. And so if you take Jesus seriously here, it will humble you because you're going to see you don't measure up. That when he says your righteousness has to exceed typical religious righteousness, your response is going to be, mine doesn't. Not like this. And so it humbles you, but then also at the very same time, Jesus gives you hope. And we looked at it last week at the beginning of the sermon. I'll go ahead and flip back there real quick. If you want to look at the beginning of chapter 5, when he says, when you've been humbled, in verse 3, and you realize that you're poor in spirit, that you don't have the righteousness that you need. You don't have the spiritual resources that you need. So you're poor in spirit and you mourn over it and it humbles you and makes you meek and you're hungry and thirsty for what you need. He makes this promise in the end of verse 6. Those people will be filled. And so when Jesus humbles you by saying, you don't live up to the standards of my kingdom, he then comes back and gives you hope and he says, but the things you don't have, I will give to you. The things that you are empty of, I will fill you up with those things if you trust him, if you are joined to him by faith, if you look to him as the source instead of yourself. And so what's really going on in this moment when Jesus says, hey, you can't live up to my standards, he comes on the backside and he says, but I can. The reason they're my standards is because I do live up to them. And the promise of Jesus' gospel is that he will live up to them for you and then he will start to live up to them in you. As his spirit comes to live in you, he will produce who he is in you. That's the only way this comes out of you. It has to come from him and not from you. He calls us to be his body, which means we need to be like him. But the only way that's going to happen is if we are depending on him to do in us what we can't do for ourselves. What's another truth about God that stands out to you? All right, Eric. Humanity's traditions need to be challenged slash explained. And there is, 
almost any time we get a truth about us, maybe any time we get a truth about us, somewhere underneath it, hiding is a truth about God, like it's what it always grows out of. And, and really right here is that what Eric's calling humanity's traditions are the way that these religious people over time learned to approach what God had revealed. You know, the things God had said, the laws God had given, over time they started to approach it this way. Like, if you do this, you're righteous. If you don't, you aren't. And they, came, they had their understanding of what God had said, but what Jesus does is basically the way he's challenging or explaining is needs to be challenged or explained by what God really means. You know, you can, you can challenge humanity's traditions all day long, and all you're doing is piling more human explanation on top of human explanation. If all you do is give your opinion instead of their opinion, your interpretation instead of their interpretation, we're not any better off. What I think isn't any more helpful than what you think. How I interpret this isn't any more helpful than how you interpret this. The traditions that I'd like to set up aren't any more helpful than the traditions you would like to set up because neither one of us are the authority here. Neither one of us can speak the way that Jesus speaks. We're like, yeah, you know, God said this before, but I say this now. If you ever hear anybody say that, get out as fast as you can. All right? Jesus is the only one who can talk this way. Now, if we come in in submission to what God says, in submission to how God has revealed himself in Jesus, and people are speaking in submission to God, in the best attempt that we can to explain what God means, then when the Spirit in you convicts you, yes, this does come from God, this is true, this is what God says, submit to that, hear that, listen to that, but not just human explanations and human words apart from a grounding. And it's why we try to go back with every one of these truths and say, hey, where do we see this? Do you see this in the Bible? Do you see that this is what God is saying right here and this is what God means? Because he's the only one who has any authority in the spiritual realm, in that way, to speak to our hearts and to explain himself. And so humanity's traditions need to be challenged and explained by what God really means. And so part of what Jesus is doing here in a huge way, and we could write this down as another truth, is he's saying, hey, you've gotten to the point where you interpret all this as just laws to control your external behavior. And I'm telling you, God wants your heart. God wants your heart to belong to him. What God wants is not somebody who's just controlled on the outside. What God wants is somebody who's been so changed on the inside that, that these things start to flow out of you because this is who you are now. And this may sound like a silly illustration, but I really think it's like almost perfect, so stick with me for just a second here. A few years ago, um, when quarantine hit, it's been like three and a half years now, and we were all locked in our houses going crazy. Um, my girls wanted a dog. And the way that we as parents decided to avoid getting a dog was, hey, we will go get guinea pigs during the quarantine. So our guinea pigs were our dog substitute. We went to PetSmart. And they didn't have any guinea pigs, because I guess everybody else was doing the same thing we were. So we went to the next Pet Smart and got like two of the last ones. And we take them home, and we've got our two guinea pigs. And 
It ended up being a really bad decision because a year and a half later we got a dog anyway. So we didn't avoid the dog thing, and then we had guinea pigs and a dog, and we finally just gave up not too long ago and gave. One of the guinea pigs did die, thankfully. But uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we couldn't, couldn't wait out the second one, and we had to give it away just a few weeks ago. But one of the things that happened as we got in our routine with the guinea pigs is that they had pellets that they ate, they had hay that they ate, and then our guinea pigs, because this is just the way we do animals in our house, had cilantro they got once a day as a treat, because uh, we can't ever treat an animal like an animal. But the cilantro, we kept it like in the refrigerator, we have this little that pull-out drawer, you know, you got the ones that open like this, but then the little pull-out drawer where you keep some of your veggies and stuff, and when you pull that drawer out, you can hear it, like really clear, it just makes a distinct sound compared to everything else in the refrigerator. Well, over time, we'd pull that drawer out, take cilantro into those guinea pigs, and they started to associate the sound of that drawer with cilantro. And so eventually, it didn't matter if it was cilantro time or not, you would pull that drawer out, and the, the guinea pig that was really, really fond of food, her name was Cuddles, she would start chirping. She heard the drawer. She wanted cilantro. And every single time, like, she had learned that drawer means cilantro. She would hear that drawer. She would chirp. And so we had conditioned her behavior at that point. And listen, we had guinea pigs for three years, and I can tell you they are not smart, they are not interactive, they are not enjoyable as pets. You do not want them. But even a guinea pig, like even a guinea pig could be trained to chirp every time they heard that drawer opening. In a really, in a really serious way, God's looking at you and me right here when Jesus is talking, and he says, I don't want guinea pigs. I'm not just trying to condition your behavior. Any animal in the world can be conditioned to behave certain ways. God's like, I don't want guinea pigs. I want children. I want you to know me and love me and be in relationship with me, and I want to change who you are because you are part of my family. Human religion, religious righteousness, can train you to chirp at all the right times and you're still just a guinea pig. And God's like, I want to make you a child. I want you to be connected to me. I want to come and live in you, and I want to change you from the inside out. I want to change your heart so that what starts to be produced inside of you is what causes the things that flow out of you. God wants so much more from you than to just chirp whenever a religious ritual rolls around. He wants it to be who you really are. That, that's how high he's raising the bar. He's saying, I want all of you. All of your heart, all of your behavior, all of your life, all of your character. I don't just want what you do. I want who you are. And so when we say that human tradi humanity's traditions need to be challenged or explained by what God really means, in this particular section, what God really means is, I want to change you from the inside out. I want all of your heart to belong to me. I want you to be connected to me so intimately on a spiritual level that my spirit is living in you and changing who you are, and everything that comes out of you comes from that. What else? Other truths about God.
Jesus calls us to be responsible for our own oops, heart, not others. And this does get to a lot of great application that we can pull out as this passage starts to humble us the way that it should. But one of the ways that this should humble us is what I said earlier about when we get in religious circles and we start to compare ourselves to everybody else to make ourselves feel better, or sometimes it makes us feel worse if we find people who, who seem on the outside to be living up to this stuff better than we are. One of the things that I would just just a word of advice that I would give you all the time is stop judging by external appearances. You look at somebody's life and it looks like it's an absolute mess, and it, it may be, because all of us end up there apart from Jesus, but you look at their life and it looks like an absolute mess, and you start to look down on them and you think you're better off than them. You don't know what they're dealing with, and you don't know how strong their faith may be growing in this moment of brokenness, how much they may be learning to depend on God and get over themselves and stop relying on themselves. You don't know the things God may be teaching to their heart in that moment. And you look at yourself and you're like, well, I've got it more together than they do. And you start to feel good about yourself and you don't realize that in that very moment your heart's learning to rely on you instead of relying on God. That actually all of your self-righteous confidence is a lack of faith and that you're drifting further and further away from Jesus because you're feeling better and better about yourself and you don't feel desperately like you need Jesus. Or you look at these people who have it all together on the outside and you start to be discouraged. and You're like, well, I can never do that. And what you don't know is they may be faking the whole thing. They may just be a better liar than you are. That's exactly what Jesus says about these religious people when we get into the next chapter. He's like, look, they pray, and it looks really impressive. They give, and it looks really impressive. They fast, and it looks really impressive. And I'm telling you, they're wrong in all of it. Their hearts are wrong in all of it. You can't know anybody else's heart. Only God can, and it is absolutely spiritually destructive for you to constantly compare yourself to everybody else, whether that's to puff yourself up or to bring yourself down. And so for you, the, the thing that Jesus calls you to here is that your heart would belong to him. That, that you would look at your own heart and that humbly you would realize when this is just between me and Jesus, when I forget about everybody else, just between me and Jesus, I don't measure up in my own heart and I desperately need Jesus. I need Jesus to do in me what only Jesus can do in me. And that's what he's calling you to. It's really similar at the very end of the Gospel of John in chapter 21 when Jesus has been resurrected. He has come back to restore Peter after Peter had denied him three times. And now they're walking on the beach together, on the shore together. And, and Jesus tells Peter, hey, the time is coming when people are going to lead you away and kill you for your faith in me. And John is walking behind them. And Peter turns and looks at John and he says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what's that to you? If I decide I want him to live until I come back, what's that have to do with you? And he says, you follow me. Like in a real sense, he's saying to Peter right there, my relationship with John has nothing to do with my relationship with you. 
What I call you to do is between you and me. You keep looking to me. You keep following me. You keep focusing on me. The other way that we can get this wrong is not even looking to other people. And listen, we do that a lot. We do that so much more than you can imagine. It's basically the reason social media exists. So that other people can convince us they're doing better than they are, and then we can convince them we're doing better than we are. And we see who comes out ahead as the best liars. Right? So we can all pretend that it's better than it really is and make everybody else fuck with. they got to pretend even more because none of us can be honest about where we really are. But not just at looking at other people, but also then Jesus calls us to be responsible for our own heart. The other thing we see in his teaching here that we often miss is that we will look at, okay, here's the external behaviors he calls me to. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not get divorced. Do not, take, or do not break your oaths. Uh, Seek justice and eye for eye and tooth for tooth. We look at this external behavior stuff, and then either one of two things happens. Either we look at it and we say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm following these rules. And it makes us start to feel self-assured, and it promotes self-reliance and self-righteousness. And all of this self-stuff, grows out of our feeling of, hey, I'm keeping the law as I understand it pretty good. And the problem with self is it's never spirit-centered. When you are relying on yourself, you are not relying on Jesus and his spirit. When you are proud of yourself, you are not glorying in Jesus and his spirit. When you are teaching yourself, hey, I, I can do these things pretty well on my own, you're, at the exact same time you're teaching yourself, I don't need Jesus for this. So that's one problem. The other problem, though, is there comes a point where you'll realize, oh, I don't live up to this standard the way I should, or I don't live up to this law the way I should, or I don't live up to this one the way that I should. And when you start to realize that, you've put all your eggs in the basket of, I do live up to the law. I keep, I'm pretty righteous. I do what I'm supposed to do. That's your identity. That's your confidence. That's your hope. And so what we do then is we learn how to fake it on the outside. This is where we start to hide what's wrong with us because we can't bring ourselves to admit that we don't measure up. We can't bring ourselves to admit that we've fallen short of these external standards. And so when, when we actually are falling short of them, we find a way to pretend and make it look like we aren't falling short. And so it either, if all you're focused on is external stuff, whether it's comparing yourself to other people or just comparing yourself to the law as you have come to define it in your life, it's either going to make you proud and self-reliant or it's going to make you a hypocrite who hides your sin. And it's probably going to make you both at the same time. Because proud people don't want anything to reveal that they aren't getting it right. So the proud people are the ones that hide their sin. The better you hide your sin, the more people admire you because you look good on the outside. And the more proud you are, the way everybody thinks about you. And it's a vicious cycle. And Jesus shows up and he's like, none of that has anything to do with my kingdom. <laughs> you need to be rescued from all the ways that your heart doesn't live up to my standards. There, there's something that lives inside of you. That this force of sin of self, of flesh that lives inside of you, and you can't conquer it no matter how much you hide it. And Jesus is like, I came to conquer it for you. I came to crucify that in you with my death and then bring to life in you my spirit with my resurrection. One of the best places to see this, and this connects to where Jesus started today. We'll take one or two more, two more truths after this, but... Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, 
And Paul makes some more comments in Romans 7 if you want to make a note and if you want to do more research on this this week, more study of this. But in Galatians chapter 3, Paul gives us one of the clearest statements about how God uses the law, like these external laws, to drive us to Jesus. He says, starting in verse 23, let's pick 23, Galatians 3, 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And just simple explanation right here. Paul says, when God gave the law, the point of the law was to drive you to faith in Christ. And the way the law does that is when God gives the law, you start to realize, I can't live up to God's law. I will never be right with God if it depends on me perfectly keeping this law. I can't do it. And so the point of the law is to break you of self-reliance. The point of the law is to drive you to faith in Jesus. The law reaches its fulfillment when you turn from yourself and you turn to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I can't do this. You're the only one who can. You've done it perfectly. I can't. I need you. That is the fulfillment of the law. It's driving you to faith in Jesus, which can now produce something better in you than the law ever could on its own. And so when Jesus starts up here and he says... I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. You know, at least part of what he's saying is that he perfectly lives out everything that's intended in the law and the prophets. He fulfills them in that way. But the other part of what he's saying there, when we start to read it in light of Galatians 3 and in light of Romans 7, if you want to read that later, is Jesus is saying, the law was always about me. The law was always going to drive you to me. And I'm here now. I am the fulfillment of the law. If you continue to just see the law and religious rituals and religious behavior and it never causes you to look to Jesus, you're not just missing Jesus, you're missing the purpose of the law too. You cannot live out the law the way God intends unless it's driving you to Jesus. That is the point. And, and to think of this type of fulfillment, I think it, it, it's sort of like seeing the relationship and I've used this before in different situations, I think, so if you've heard it, stick with me. But the relationship between an acorn and an oak tree. Like when God gave the law, it is like that acorn. And, and everything that God intends to come from that is contained there. But in order to reach the fulfillment of what that acorn is going to be, it has to grow into this oak tree. And when it does, in one sense, the acorn's gone. Right? When the acorn turns into an oak, you could, you could say, well, the acorn's been destroyed. There isn't an acorn anymore. It's an oak tree. But in another sense, you could say, no, the oak tree is the fulfillment of the acorn. It's what it was always supposed to be. It, it, if it hadn't become an oak tree, that would have been a failure of the acorn. And so part of what Jesus is teaching here is, yeah, God gave the law. And it really did come from him. And so when he keeps saying, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He's not saying, hey, there's something wrong with what God said before. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, discount it, discard it, throw it away. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when God said these things, this was the seed of what he intends to grow into this huge tree in his kingdom. And I'm telling you what that tree is supposed to look like. Faith in me that changes your heart in such a way that it's not just about your behavior, but it's about who you are. 
And when that happens, Jesus says, that's the fulfillment of everything God intended to accomplish through the law, to drive you to Jesus in such a way that you know Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is the only one who can do this. He's the only one who has done it, and he's the only one who can do it in you, and he promises that he will. That if you will come to him in faith and die to yourself and trust him and follow him, he will live inside of you to do this in you. And that's the purpose of the whole story. Genesis to Revelation, law, prophets, New Testament, the whole thing is for you to come to faith in Christ in this way so that he lives in you, makes you part of his family, and he receives the glory that he intends as God saves his people through him. Another truth about God or another, what's God saying to your heart? Application time if you want to share a couple more things. Yeah. Everything humanity does should be for the glory of God and his kingdom. Yeah, and two different ways to see that today. One of them is the verse right before where we started, where we ended last week in verse 16. When Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, the purpose of your visible righteousness isn't that people will look at you and be impressed with how good you are. The purpose of your visible righteousness is that people would look at you and start to think only God can produce that in somebody. God is the one who gets the credit for that because God is the one who's working inside of them. And so this is a whole other way that if all you ever do is just live out external religious righteousness without internal heart change, if, if your discipline and self-reliance and determination is the source of the good things you do, then you get the credit for the good things you do. And you getting the credit for the good things you do is sin in Jesus' kingdom. If the glory belongs to you instead of belonging to God, you are committing the exact same sin that was at the root of Satan's fall. Like th this isn't just typical human sin. This is diabolical sin when you replace God and glory belongs to you instead of God, when you're the source instead of God. And so you can do things that look like you're keeping everything all the rules on the outside, doing all the right things on the outside. And if you do it in a way that you rely on you and credit comes to you, you are sinning against the very glory of God. And so Jesus comes and says, no, the standard in my kingdom is not just that you do these things, but you do these things through reliance on me so that the glory goes to my Father in heaven. That the, the one who gets the credit, the one who is praised, has to be God himself. So we see it that way, and then at the very end down here, he also just makes it really clear. And we already looked at it, but be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reason that you do good things is because of who God is. Like it's not about you. It's not proving something about you. It's showing something about him. You're starting to reflect him because you're part of his family and he's living in you. So God is the standard. God's the one that shows us what it really looks like in his kingdom, what we're supposed to be, and then we're supposed to do it in such a way that he gets the glory when it starts to come out of us. So you're either relying on him or you're relying on yourself. And the externals can look exactly the same. Right? 
I can get up every morning and out of self-reliance read my Bible and pray. Or I can get up every morning out of faith and say, God, I need you to do something in me. And you're the only one who can do it, and I trust you. So I come to you in prayer and in the Word. I do the exact same thing on the outside. I read my Bible and pray. But one of them is promoting a self-righteous religion that's about me, and I'm the source of it. And one of them is promoting a Jesus-centered religion that's dependent on him and growing in faith in him. So is your heart about the glory of God? Is your heart about the kingdom of God? Is that what's driving what you do? And every time it's not, what Jesus is really calling you to do in this part of the sermon, he's not calling you to hide it more. He's not calling you to cover it up with more intense external behavior. He's not calling you to try to fix it yourself. He's calling you to come and confess that. Like this entire section of this sermon is Jesus saying, hey, it's higher and harder than you ever thought it was. You can't get there on your own. Confess it to me. Admit that you're one of these people who are poor in spirit. I'm going to raise the bar so high that you should know you'll never get to it and you should come humbly and say, Jesus, I can't get there. I need you. I need you to do what I can't do. I need you to do what only you can do. And so he's in every one of these verses right now, he's breaking us over and over and over of self-reliance. He said, you need to die to your self-reliance, so you need to come to faith in me. Any more application for your heart? Yeah. 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 We're going to end there because this is where I was intending to end. <laughs> and it's always such a great moment when God says it like to all of us together. And one of those moments of reminder of this is the Spirit speaking from the Word. This isn't me up here talking to you. And so, yeah, if we go through this whole list right here, I want you to see that every time Jesus raises the bar, and in case you couldn't hear what Keith was saying or you're listening online and you couldn't hear right then, Every time Jesus raises the bar and he's like, hey, you've been told don't murder. But I'm telling you, don't even be angry with your brother in your heart. You've been told don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even lust in your heart. One of the things, first of all, to realize is that usually you know, we've done this. But we've had it backwards. We've been like, yeah, it's bad to be angry, but I don't murder anybody. And that's a bigger deal. Yeah, it's bad to lust, but I've never committed adultery. And that's a bigger deal. And we've done it like this. And the first thing to say about that, like for humility for us, is it's like Jesus levels the playing field and he's like, hey, in my kingdom there aren't worse sins and less bad sins. It's not how it is. And you may look at other people and think, well, they're worse than me because they've done that and I haven't. And he's like, no, I see your heart and I see their heart and I tell you they're the same. I tell you, there's the same sin living inside of you, and you need me just as much as they do. Picture pick, whoever it is that you think is farthest from God, whoever it is that you think is missing it the most, the judgments and the condemnation that you would make toward their heart, Jesus looks at you and he says, that's your heart. I, he's telling you, I know it is. 
And so the first thing he's doing is he's saying there aren't, there's not a ranking system of sin in his kingdom. Sin is sin. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. And when that lives in your heart and it lives in all of our hearts, then we desperately need Jesus to be who only Jesus can be for us. But then the other thing is sometimes we'll read this and we'll be like, okay, so, you know, I thought that murder was here and anger was here. But Jesus is saying they're the same. So murder's not as bad as I thought it was. It's just like anger. You know, or I thought that adultery was here and lust was here, but Jesus is saying they're the same. So this isn't as bad as I thought it was. It's really... It's the opposite of that. Jesus is saying, you remember how bad you thought murder was? You're probably still underestimating it, but you're right. It's up here. So is anger. Like what, what you would think of if you personally knew somebody that had murdered somebody else, like how awful you would think that, would, that is, Jesus looked at you, that's how awful the anger in your heart is. However bad you think adultery is, Jesus says lust is that bad too. However bad you think it is to break an oath to God, that's how bad it is to not be an honest person. And just over and over and over, he's saying that the things that are hidden in your heart, the things that nobody else can see except for him, they're as serious as whatever it is that you think is really serious. And so again, he's coming to us and he's saying, you don't live up to these standards. But then what Keith said here, what we get over and over and over is the picture of the one who does. And this picture won't be as lovely and beautiful and glorious to you as it should be until you hear the first part of, of Jesus' message for you. Like until you're broken of self, until you're desperate to be rescued, until you know that you are poor in spirit, you won't fully see how wonderful it is that Jesus does all this for you. But when you do come to the place where you're like, I know I, like, what he is saying, he is exposing me and I don't live up, I don't measure up, then you start to look at this, and every step along the way, just you see Jesus, and you see that Jesus does live up to all of us. So you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And then Jesus basically says, but if you're angry, you are a murderer. That's what he's saying. And so here we all sit guilty of murder in our hearts in different ways, and Jesus says, but I will show up and be murdered to rescue murderers. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even lust after a woman in your heart. And Jesus is like, you're all guilty of this type of adultery. You're all guilty of spiritual adultery against God. And he says, I will show up as the faithful one who will die for the unfaithful ones. Jesus shows up and faithfully dies for you to rescue you from your unfaithfulness. He talks about divorce here, and he's and Keith made the promise here that he will never leave you or forsake you. That all the ways that we break our relationships in this life, even the most significant one in the eyes of God, this marriage covenant, when we're breaking that, and Jesus shows up and says, I never break my relationship with you. When you are mine, when you come to me in faith, I don't abandon you. I don't let you go. I die, I die, so that I can have a covenant relationship with people who have not lived up to their covenant relationships. Again, you've heard that it was said, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows you've made to the Lord. You have not lived up. The things that you have sung this morning, I promise you, you've not lived up to them in the past week. Like, that's how easily these words flow out of our mouth sometimes. And we don't really live up to them. And Jesus says, I will fulfill every promise that God has ever made. That it's all yes and amen in Christ. That he's the fulfillment of everything that we couldn't do, he can do. 
eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You know, actually, when you read the Old Testament, this was limiting vengeance. Like, it sounds like, okay, somebody gouges your eye out. Oh, you get to gouge theirs out. But what's actually being said in the context is, you can't do more than that. <laughs> it's, it, it, in your anger, you cannot do more to them than what they owe you. So it was already, in a sense, a, a gracious word of justice that's limiting how much you seek revenge. But Jesus shows up and he says, okay, so you understood that to be a limit on how much revenge you can get. Now I'm telling you, no revenge at all. When they owe you because of what they've done to you, love them anyway. Pray for them anyway. Treat them in a way they've never treated you. And we sit here like, my heart doesn't want to do that so often. My heart doesn't do that. And Jesus shows up and he says, my heart does that for you. You owe Jesus. And instead of Jesus saying, here's what you owe, here's what I'm going to take from you, Jesus says, I'll pay what you owe for you. I will give you what you owe me. I will treat you in a way that you have never treated me. I will love you in a way that you have never loved me. When you made yourself Jesus' enemy, Jesus loves you then. Jesus intercedes with the Father for you then. Jesus is praying for you then. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this, living up to all of it. Every single piece of this sermon, it should simultaneously remind you, you can't do this on your own. But Jesus can do this for you. He has done this for you. And he wants to live inside of you and do this inside of you. And so in just a minute here, we're going to pray together. And then as we move into baptism, this is going to be a picture of people who are saying, I'm putting my faith in Jesus in that way. And by the way, Tasha, Lisa, if you, Lisa, if you want to have Teresa bring the kids on in, if your kids start coming in and you want to look for them, wave at them, uh, they'll come and sit with you here in just seconds. We'll get ready for baptism. But I just want to, like what you're about to see right here in baptism is the exact thing that we're talking about in this section of the sermon. Because the, the visible picture that we get on the outside, it means nothing if there's not a spiritual reality in our hearts to match it. And the spiritual reality that Romans 6 talks about with this visible picture is that you are buried with Christ in baptism and then you are raised with Christ to live a new life. That this is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and us being joined to him, joined with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that the old us dies with him. That the us that can't measure up, can't live up, can't do it, has fallen short, all the sin and unrighteousness that we bring with us is buried with Jesus, and then raised to live a new life in the power of his resurrection is this new person who comes to life. Galatians 2.20 says that it's Christ in me. That Christ living in me is the new life now that I live in him. The other way that Colossians 1 says is that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That all of your hope that you would be accepted into this kingdom of glory and that you would live for the glory of God is the fact that Christ now lives in you. Dead to the old self, dead to the old way of life, of trying on your own and achieving on your own and all of your external expressions and a new life of the Spirit living in you, a spiritual life in a spiritual kingdom. And so when we celebrate these seven baptisms over and over and over, you're going to hear the same thing declared. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and a, a spiritual reality that matches that in us as we're buried with him and raised to new life. And then right after that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. 
And it's going to be the same thing again. That it's the body and blood of Jesus, the, the physical remembrance of the spiritual reality that Jesus is our life. Jesus nourishes us. Jesus feeds us. That all of this is by dependence on Jesus. So that's where we're headed right now. Hear the teaching in that. See the teaching in that. And then we'll worship together here again with a couple more songs in just a minute. But Teresa, Eric, I'm not sure who's up first, but I'm going to turn it over to you all for a few minutes. Do you have a mic down there or do I need to bring you one? Got one? All right. Today is a very exciting day. Anytime that we get to see teenagers and children and adults publicly stand for Christ, that is a day of celebration. Baptism doesn't save you. It is the way that you tell the world what has happened in your heart, that you have believed in Jesus. And so we've got a lot of people today that are ready to make their public profession of faith. We're going to start with Declan, Declan Yon, down here. This is a big day. Declan, I want to ask you some questions to give you an opportunity to confess with your mouth because we know you believe in your heart. Declan, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died on a cross as punishment for your sin? Yes. Do you believe on the third day he rose again? Yes. Have you received him as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. Oh, okay. It is because of your public declaration of what you believe in your heart that it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, Bergman is coming up next and at Bible school God was working on her heart and when we went to summer camp she passed me a note and she just stood there and looked at me she's waiting for me to read the note thought it was going to be something about her puppy or something like that it said would you please help me get saved it's like oh yes I will so Maya I have some questions for you do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that he died on the cross as punishment for your sin? Yes. Have you put your trust in Jesus what he did on the cross? Yes. Do you commit to follow him and to be a Jesus follower for the rest of your life to the best of your ability with the help of the Holy Spirit? Because of that beautiful declaration of what you believe, it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father who created you, the Son who died for you, and the Holy Spirit that lives within you. 
Our next child is Meg Berryman. And you can come on up this way. There we go. And last week, Meg and I met before Kids Church, and she was so excited to tell me that she had committed in her heart and was ready to be baptized. And she said, I want to do it today. Just get the water ready. Can I do it today? And I said, well, can we wait till next week? And she said, I guess. So I know it was a long week, but I'm thankful that you waited. Come on down. Now, we love when a parent would like to baptize their children. And so I'm going to step aside and have John, her father, um, lead her through this process. We're so proud of you, Meg. You know that, right? You know, this is so much bigger than just me or my girl Kassan or even you. This is the biggest thing. Do you believe that Jesus came to earth to die for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that in three days he was raised alive? Yes. Do you believe that you'll be with him in heaven? Yes. Have you accepted in your heart that he has covered your sins? Yes. Okay, then we're going to baptize you. Don't you hold your nose? There you go. All right. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins. Now we have some teenagers and an adult. The first teenager is Sarah Mead, and she is now in the youth department, and Eric has been pouring into her so faithfully along with your family, but she's asked me to baptize her because she actually got saved while she was in the children's ministry at Vacation Bible School over a year ago, and she's now ready to make it public. I'm so proud of you. She not only has lived out her faith in her walk, but she has brought her friends to Jesus. She's a big reason why these other girls are here. Sarah, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Yes. Do you believe he's the perfect son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died on a cross as payment for your sin? Do you believe on the third day he rose again? Do you receive him as your personal Lord and Savior? It's because of that proclamation that it's my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have uh, Miss Roxy coming up here real quick. Can y'all give a hand for her? All right. So, um, so Roxy has actually, um, you know, Sarah has invited Roxy and invited quite a few people in their neighborhood um, as well. And uh, Roxy has made this decision um, at the same, at around the same time, maybe a little bit later. Um, but the cool thing about this is that as I was asking her. Um, about what's changed in your life and what what's been going on, and she just says, you know, it just it just feels so real, you know, it just feels so real, and I feel like I could just come to God with anything, and um, if anything, 
I think, man, that's a challenge to myself, and that's a challenge to all of you as well. And it's not just, it, it's not just a challenge for teenagers, but just to know that you can come with real raw feelings to Jesus Christ and understand that, know that he is the Lord. Um, that's, that's, that's a truth that we can all take. Um, in seeing, in seeing um, Roxy kind of play out her faith even on Wednesday nights and in being so bold to, to find out these truths or look at these truths in the Bible and, and, and share them um, has been such a cool thing. So uh, with that, I just have some questions for you um, as well, Roxy. So um, have you, do you, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that, um, do you believe that, he died on the third day and he rose again. With that, I mean, do you also believe that he is, or have you made him the Lord of your life? Yes. And it is with that uh, testimony, it is with that profession that I now baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is uh, Lauren. I say Lauren every time I see her all the time. So that's my little nickname for her. Um, and Lauren, me and Lauren go way back, way, way, way back. Um, she's actually been in some of the classes with my oldest son. And, um, and we've also just shared some times in a, in a scout troop as well, um, too. And, and, you know, Lauren, that was so as Sarah and Roxy were together, they also have been inviting Lauren to come to church as well. And she's been kind of ironing some things out with her faith, too. And I remember so cool. I mean, just the one thing I love about Lauren is that she as she was coming, she was very shy, kind of like kind of like just in her shell a little bit. And then she starts coming up to me after after service and waiting for everyone to kind of leave. And she's asking these questions. And one of the first questions I remember you asking, Lauren, was when we put our hands together, why do we put them hands? Why do we have to put our hands together to pray? Why do we have to do this? Like, what, what, what's going on? Like, is it an arrow pointing up to Jesus? And I said, you know what? I don't know the I don't know the answer to that question, but that sounds about right. Um, and, and, and not only to see that, but then also to see her work out some of the questions that she has. And she's so bold enough to answer those questions. And just this Wednesday, she had a question. And it was probably the most phenomenal thing to see our students all from high school down to uh, down to middle school that actually walked with her on that question right then and there. Um, and then she actually developed developed the answer as the spirit was just leading in that whole group right there. Um, and it is because of things like that um, where you're so bold to ask those questions, where you're so bold to understand that. Um, and then she actually made a decision serving in VBS this year um, to make Jesus Christ the personal Lord and Savior. So not only did she make a, make a decision as just, you know, as she was ironing out her faith and understanding what that meant, but also as she was serving in VBS, she said, I need this to happen. Um, I need to make Jesus Christ personal Lord and Savior. So um, with that, I just asked you some questions that, um, do you believe that Jesus died on the, died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that uh, with that undeniable power that he, that he was put to death and he rose and defeated death on the third day. And um, with that, 
do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life? Absolutely. And it's with that profession that I'll baptize you, my sister, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This next one is uh, this next is Brandon. This is actually Lauren's uh, Lauren's father. Um, and I tell you, yesterday we had a really good conversation um, over some lunch and talking about uh, talking about faith and, and what that what that means to you and, and, and everything else. And so, if I can just say something real quick, um, that's funny, but it also means so much to me. Is that I would say that Brandon brought the hood to the house today, to the, the house of the Lord. And when I say that. Um, the entire neighborhood spends some time at his house a lot of the times, and there are neighbors, there are family members, and there's lots of people that are here um, because they spend that time um, at his house. And so uh, as we were talking yesterday, he was telling me how Lauren was coming home and how Lauren and him have been having conversations about Jesus Christ and how they have been having these conversations that essentially said, you know what, I've made this decision a long time ago, but... I need, to, I need to make sure that I'm complete in the circle. Um, and I would say that that it just means a lot to me as a father, that you would allow yourself to be taught by your daughter and say, you know what, I need to make this decision. Um, and with that, as you, and I, would, I just want to personally thank you and Rachel and Matt and Ashley who have opened your home to these to these neighborhood these neighborhood kids and essentially have been a foundation of ministry here and I want to tell you right now that we support that um, and that as you continue doing that know that this is an example that you're setting for even all of us here as students and adults alike man so keep doing that and keep leading and with that I have these same questions is that uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins do you believe that he defeated death and rose on the third day? And do you make Jesus Christ the personal Lord and Savior of your life? Absolutely. And with that, I baptize you, my brother, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. continue our time of worship together right now by taking the Lord's Supper for those of you who are trusting Jesus and following him and part of the connection between baptism as this initial declaration of faith you know this immediate one time event where we're saying I am trusted in Jesus and I want to declare it publicly and then the Lord's Supper is this reminder of this isn't just a one time thing this is the rest of my life depending on Jesus, relying on Jesus, looking to Jesus, remembering Jesus, being sustained and spiritually nourished 
by Jesus. And so we, we take communion together about once a month just as this repeated reminder that it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that is all of our hope and all of our spiritual resources and all of our spiritual strength coming from him. And so as we do this today, I pray that you will look to him in faith and that you will continue to deepen your dependence on him. Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. said this cup is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me we're going to sing a couple more songs of worship together now Uh, we'll have some people down here at the front to talk and pray with you if there's anything that you would like to talk or pray about that God's doing in your heart right now. Um, And even if you have questions about what it really means to trust and follow Jesus the way we've been talking about today, we'd love to talk with you about that. But you're welcome to come down and pray with people. And then when we're finished, if you are hanging around for the Q&A, that's going to be in the small auditorium where we usually have kids' church, and we'd love for you to stay for that. So I'll see you up there if that's what you decide to do. But right now, will you stand, sing, and worship with us, and come and pray if you feel led to do that.